Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I've hated the futility of opposition. Opposition achieves nothing. Uh, the most important thing is to have a Labour government. A bit like being the England manager. Everybody can do your job better than you. Keir Starmer follows a long line of opposition leaders who really, really, really hate their job. Winston Churchill said it was a fate worse than being shot. William Hague said it was harder than being Prime Minister. Not that he'd know. And Neil Kinnock, well, this is what Neil Kinnock thinks of the role he held for nine long years. It's probably about the worst job in politics. It's one of the few jobs that when you take it on, you want to get rid of it. Not a great way to spend your life. But of course, everyone that does it, does it for one simple reason. It is all in the pursuit of the ultimate prize, power. If the polls are to be believed, the five years of futility will have been worth it for Keir Starmer. So now, however many months out we are, all politicians are beginning to look beyond the election and consider what their fate might be. So far, nearly 60 Conservatives have announced they will be standing down. Others are nervously glancing at their majorities and making inquiries about their possible job prospects. But while these are the key questions for some departing MPs, for the rest of us, the biggest impact will come from those who stick around and become that essential institution, His Majesty's Opposition. Last season, I made an episode called How to Prepare for Government, with information on access talks and even a guide to literally opening the door of Number 10 Downing Street. After which, I was taken to task by a Tory MP, saying that it was really only fair that I made a similar roadmap for those unfortunate enough to be standing on the precipice of opposition. So this week, I've done exactly that. It's a condition for which you can't prepare. It's a bit like the first time you become a father or a mother. It is quite a shock to realise that you've got to write your own speeches. Anyone who thinks they're going to be media stars when in opposition, they're just deluding themselves. Their currency collapses. You can ask questions, you can challenge ministers, you can make speeches, but you can't actually change anything. From Politico, I'm Maggie Chambray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm asking how best to prepare for opposition and trying to work out if there's any point to the whole miserable exercise beyond getting back into power.
1937. Stanley Baldwin was knackered. The Prime Minister had spent the last few months dealing with the abdication crisis of King Edward VIII. Baldwin had been leading the country on and off since 1923, and he was done. He was ready to retire in peace. But there was one thing he needed to do before he left politics forever. And that was to raise MPs' salaries by a third and to give the opposition leader a government salary. He'd had the idea a decade before, but it was only now, when he was leaving public life, that he felt able to implement it. He just thought it was something that needed to be done. And as so often happens in politics, he did it as he was leaving office. So as he was on his way out as a kind of parting gift, it was something he thought was the right thing to do. This is Nigel Fletcher. His book, Institutionalised Dissent, which is the entire history of the opposition in Britain, is out now. It was Clement Attlee was the leader of the opposition. And in the past, we had a much more amateur approach to politics where you'd have cabinet ministers and prime ministers would come from landed aristocracy and so they had their own resources and MPs weren't paid. But we then got to a position where you had the Labour Party, was then the official opposition, uh, Clement Attlee, not a rich man, certainly not landed aristocracy from independent means. And so Baldwin, as prime minister, sort of looked at that and thought, well, we're expecting him to do a full-time job. Clement Attlee wrote in his memoirs at the time that this was both a welcome relief for him and a welcome recognition that parliamentary government depends on having an effective opposition. As the years went on, more support was given to opposition leaders, like a government car to drive around in. And all it took for that to happen was the indignity of Harold Wilson, a former Prime Minister no less, being made to queue for a taxi. Imagine his former government chief whip thought this was an outrage, thought this man that you know used to be prime minister three weeks ago, why is he sort of being treated like this? Uh, I mentioned this to the Tory chief whip and said, I think you know we need to do something about this. And it was mentioned to Edward Heath, uh, and he agreed. And so they provided a car at that time for the leader of the opposition. So that stuck. In the 1970s, something else stuck. Short money. Named after the then leader of the house, Ted Short. It essentially meant opposition parties were now given some government funding for staffers. Before this, staffers were paid out of pocket, or their wives just did it for free. But in the era of short money, the operation of being an opposition MP became more professional still. Harold Wilson, who had benefited from the concession from Edward Heath for the car, then almost repaid the favour because he then, after the 74 election, proposed that the opposition should receive funding. But he did so on a very principled basis. He makes the case that in a democracy it is a good thing for the opposition to be properly resourced to do the job they have to do. So he brought that in to help his opponents, but also with a, a mind to the fact that, you know, Labour would be in opposition in future and this was a good thing, whoever the party is. And we still have that system. It's still in place. Fast forward to 2024. Short money is still in place, but that does not mean opposition parties are flush with cash. In fact, it's quite the opposite. One of the first things people mention when you ask what it's like going from government to opposition is how resources are suddenly stripped away. A Secretary of State goes from running a department with thousands of staff to a pokey little office in Parliament with one or two junior aides. If you're in government, you've got the government machine behind you, you've got briefing, you've got people to help you with publicity. This is George Young, a Conservative peer who's been knocking around Parliament since 1974. Basically, you're very much on your own 
And it is quite a shock to realize that you've got to write your own speeches. You can't get briefing. You can't get uh, legal advice from within the government. And for publicity, basically, you're, you're on your own with whatever small resources you have in opposition. So the terms of trade are really very different. George Young has seen it all. He has been Transport Secretary, Chief Whip and Leader of the House. He was first elected into opposition. After that, he went into government, then into opposition, then into government again. For him, one of the biggest shocks, apart from having to write his own speeches, was the title change. This happens instantly, the moment the election is lost. At about four o'clock in the morning, I got a telephone call from my private office and instead of saying, good morning, Secretary of State, it was good morning, Sir George. Can we make arrangements to collect your red boxes and your keys and your pass? So it is quite, uh, quite abrupt. Ouch. Given his experience of opposition in the 1970s, did George Young have any advice for his smarting Tory colleagues? Well, it's a good question, because when we lost in 97, there were relatively few people who'd been around in the 1974 Parliament. In opposition, what we learned was try and keep the party together, try and avoid sort of damaging splits. If you're going to change the leader, do it at the beginning, which we did, with Ted Heath being replaced by Margaret Thatcher. And again, when John Major stood down, we elected William Hague and stayed with him for the whole of that Parliament. So if you're going to change the leader, change the leader, but don't do it too often. Also, you have to keep the party motivated. If you're going to be five years in opposition, somehow you've got to keep people interested in politics alive, motivated to keeping the show on the road to win the next election, rather than being, oh, we've lost the election, I'm all depressed, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to play my part. Okay, and if I was a Tory MP that came to you and said, how do I best prepare for opposition? What would be your top tip? I would say choose a subject and become an expert in it what the House of Commons or the House of Lords likes. People know what they're talking about. And in, in opposition, I specialised in social security. A lot of Conservative MPs were focusing on defence, foreign affairs, the economy. And I chose a subject, social security, which not a lot of other people were focused on, and focused on that, following the bills, holding the government to account. So find a niche subject, bone up on it. Part of the value of boning up on it is that when your party is back in government, you are more likely to get a government job. You could even start thinking about this topic before you get into opposition. There's just one problem with this. It can be hard to imagine you're going to lose an election before it actually happens. Psychologically, one is not contemplating defeat. One always hopes that something's going to happen and you're going to win. Young thinks MPs would be better served if a think tank like the Institute for Government, offered crash courses in how to do the job well. Perhaps they should have a course preparing people for opposition, but it's a hazard in that no party wants to go into an election saying, I've just been on a course preparing for opposition. Mm, that's very interesting. It's worth saying the Institute does have a session on effective opposition. This is Kath Haddon, Programme Director at the Institute for Government. And we are thinking about broadening that out to thinking about the role of MPs more generally. The difficulty with doing anything, as it were, preparing for opposition is that obviously parties in government don't really want to start thinking about those sorts of issues. So I'm not sure that the market is there at the moment. But I do think that it is 
an important question that we don't really think about how we support opposition parties, particularly when they first go into the role. And they're often doing so when they're in the greatest turmoil within their party, possibly going through a leadership contest, no idea who the shadow cabinets will be, all sorts of these issues. I mean, they're basically just confronted with some empty rooms and have to work out for themselves how to operate. Sometimes the rooms were worse than empty. Former Tory cabinet minister Gillian Shepherd wrote in her book that in 1997, when they entered the shadow cabinet office, it was absolutely disgusting. It was scattered in open pizza boxes and abandoned Coke cans because it had been used by John Prescott and his team during their election campaign. After Shepherd and co had cleared up, their attention had to immediately turn to what's next and think about questions like what their new policy offer would be. If you're newly into opposition, you're not really thinking about immediately developing your policies for governments. What you might be doing, though, is being at the earliest stage of opposition policy making. So doing big policy reviews, possibly involving outside experts or think tanks in order to take stock of the party's recent positioning and to start thinking again about building from the ground up. And you saw that David Cameron did this when he became opposition leader. Tony Blair and his predecessor, John Smith, both did it. I said when I launched my campaign that we needed to change in order to win. Now that I've won, we will change. And both of those processes were as important for sort of rebuilding the party and and its overarching sort of stance as much as they were about preparing policies for, for getting into government. And what do you think the most difficult thing about going into opposition from government is? I think there is a personal element, which is just the shock to the system. You know, the opposition is composed of a lot of people who whose entire experience of being an MP has been when their party has been in government. You're certainly not given a guide to how you operate. You have to start thinking through the rhythm of how you're going to start putting down departmental questions, responding to debates, dealing with legislation that the government is putting forward. So, yeah, being an effective opposition is incredibly hard work. It's probably about the worst job in politics. A fundamental and obvious reason for that is that it's one of the few jobs that when you take it on, you want to get rid of it. Friend of the podcast, Neil Kinnock again. Because obviously you want to win an election and put your party in the government. So it's got that inbuilt frustration and impatience, which is not a great way to spend your life. What's the point of opposition? It's essential in democracy that even without an official opposition and a substantial party to oppose the government, governments are held to account. And occasionally they are by their own backbenchers, by their own ministers indeed, to an extent even by their own parties or by external influences. And of course what oppositions have to do is to ensure that they don't become institutionalised, settle for the luxury of continual protest and objection. And do you think there's any way to prepare for opposition? No, it's a condition for which you can't prepare. It's, it's a bit like the first time you become a father or a mother. For you, what was the best thing you achieved in opposition? Turning the party from a completely unelectable, financially virtually bankrupt organisation with 
a semblance of rules that were honoured more in the breach than in the application into an electable party. Somebody said to me, you made the Labour Party electable. And my response instantaneously was instinctive. Yes, yes, that might be the truth, but Tony Blair got it elected and there's a hell of a difference. And, and, and as leader of the opposition, you get sort of briefings, don't you, from number 10. I mean, I know Keir Starmer had them recently about the Houthi strikes, but I think you have said that the briefings you got from uh, Margaret Thatcher actually weren't that useful. Prime Minister's certainly since the 1940s and since the coalition government of wartime have felt obligated to undertake discussions with the leader of the opposition, particularly, indeed, probably solely on security issues. So I had the experience of seeing Prime Minister Thatcher sporadically over the seven years she was Prime Minister while I was leader of the opposition and over nearly three years with John Major. There was a categoric difference in the quality of the discussions and briefing. Mrs Thatcher was superficial, secretive. John Major had an entirely different approach. In that case, do they listen to you? Can you influence what they do or is it sort of just taking it on board? It's impossible to judge whether you're exerting influence or not. The only reality that you can measure is whether you've conveyed uh, commitment, knowledge, authority in the area. After the Tories secured their majority in 2015, one jubilant MP bumped into a fellow parliamentarian in the corridor. You know the best thing about this, he asked. No one is going to care about Labour for five whole years. He, perhaps, was anticipating a repeat of another half-decade with an Ed Miliband-esque leader, and everyone reacting by completely losing interest in politics. But then... Jeremy Corbyn, 251,000. It was a landslide, even bigger than Tony Blair's result when he won the leadership 21 years ago. But despite the spectacle of the Corbyn era, nothing, literally nothing, Corbyn would say or do over the next five years would matter a jot when it came to government policy. I think, you know, 14 years in opposition has been really hard, really hard, because you can ask questions, you can challenge ministers, you can make speeches, but you can't actually change anything. This is Diana Johnson, long-serving Labour MP and chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee. When you walk into Johnson's parliamentary office, one of the first things you notice is her red box. Her ministerial red box from the last Labour government still proudly displayed, despite it not being of use for 14 years. What I know is when you're in government, you can change things and you can talk to your ministers in the the Labour government and you can get things done. It's much more difficult in opposition. Unable to directly affect policy, the main job of the opposition is to hold the government to account. This can be done through select committees or questions in Parliament. And, as we saw last week, opposition day debates can also be an effective tool. In these, opposition parties can pressure other parties by calling a vote on a specific topic. That vote is non-binding. Last week, 
the Scottish National Party attempted to use such a debate to force Labour into a corner over their position on Gaza. I beg to move the SNP motion, which calls for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza from all combatants. But these rarely translate into policy changes. Diana Johnson, though, has managed to make an impact in opposition and could well make it again before this parliament ends. An amendment she put down to decriminalise abortion after 24 weeks comes before the Commons next month. And she has already changed the course of the lives of some affected by the contaminated blood scandal. The result of that vote was a genuine shock. Rishi Sunak's first defeat in the Commons since becoming Prime Minister. Just at the end of last year, because the government weren't acting quickly enough, I got an amendment into the Victims' Bill, which basically said the government had to set up this compensation body. I had 140 MPs cross-party who signed up to that. We got a vote in Parliament. And the government, they had a three-line whip to vote against my amendment. And luckily, we had sufficient number of Conservative MPs who refused to vote in the way that their party said and some very brave Tories who voted with me, and we got we got it through. I think the majority was four, but we got it through. And that's cross-party working on a just cause that people could see wasn't party political, it was about justice. The eyes to the right, 246. The nose to the left, 242. <gasps> so the eyes have it. <laughs> Johnson may soon be in the party of government. And she has a warning for those that hold the position now. One thing I would say, the way you're spoken to in this place by ministers or by other MPs who are in government, you remember very clearly that one day they may, may not be in government, they may be in opposition. So I think there is something to be said to treat people properly and to remember that they too could be in, in the position that you're in as an opposition MP before too long and that you would expect to be treated in a in a you know respectful way so i think there are some conservative mp's who perhaps will find in opposition they would like that courtesy extended to them even if they haven't done that when they've been in government a cabinet minister's route to backbench mp's I had an experience with Kemi Badenoch, actually. She was really quite rude to me in the chamber, and I thought, well, that's, that's not the way that I would expect to be spoken to by a senior politician. So all I'm making the point is you, you reap what you sow kind of thing, so you just need to be careful because one day you may well be in opposition and you don't want to be spoken to in those terms. Kemi, you've been warned. Coming up after the break, we'll hear what some Conservatives are doing to prepare for life after the next election. Spoiler alert, it's not thinking about how nice they'll be to the new government. You have got to have that far in your belly to make it as short a visit as possible to the opposition benches. Stay with us. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. 
That's BlueNile.com. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. What do all these have in common? Move abroad, become a CEO, present a GB News show, start a podcast, found a think tank, write a book. They are, of course, all things that, in private, Tory MPs are talking about doing when they leave politics. One of the major challenges for opposition is learning how to do it when you have a mass exodus of talent. There are already nearly 60 Tory MPs standing down. Many in Westminster believe there'll be more to come. And if the polls are even close to being right, lots of those who stay on and fight will lose their seats. So, naturally, they're thinking about what to do next. But it may not be totally straightforward for everyone. One public affairs bod told me Labour is the only show in town. They're just not interested in Tories anymore. And a Conservative MP, not standing down, was scathing about their colleagues' chances of getting jobs. Most MP stuff, he said, isn't really a transferable skill. Look, I think that's deeply unfair. I think being an MP brings incredible transferable skills. This is Robert Buckland, former Justice Secretary and current Tory MP, not standing down at the next election. A rare beast these days. You've got to be a good negotiator. You've got to be able to persuade people about the merits of your case. You've got to be able to win, you know, sometimes very difficult constituents or or interest groups over to your side, even if you don't agree with them. You've got to manage an incredible workload. You've got to manage a team of employees well. So human resources becomes important. Uh, there are so many skills, I think, that you acquire as a Member of Parliament that I think they should not be underestimated or downgraded by potential employees. You know, gone are the days when perhaps MPs would just stroll into boards, you know, and probably a good thing. But I think potential employers should give MPs a fair hearing and see what skills they have. I think they'd be pleasantly surprised. Do you think companies might not give MPs a fair hearing? I think if anything now, there seems to be almost a stigma about coming into Parliament and being an MP. It's somehow not an honourable thing to do. I can't think of a more honourable calling than wanting to serve your country and serve your constituency in the House of Commons. Call me an old romantic. But I still believe in this place. I still believe in its power, its authority, its responsibility. And that's why I think that uh, we need to sort of get the pendulum in the middle somewhere so that MPs are getting as fair a hearing as other people who might suddenly lose their jobs through no fault of their own. Buckland, who has a very small majority, does appear to have a plan if he were to lose his seat. Well, I had a long life before politics. I was 20 years as a criminal barrister. Politics was my hobby. I was a 
county councillor in my 20s. I stood for parliament a number of times, but it only became uh, my main uh, preoccupation in my 40s. I'm not a career politician, despite the fact I might look and sound like one. I remember Tony Benn said he was going to leave Parliament because he was going to concentrate on politics. Um, you know, there's a lot in what he said there. You are standing again. I am. Okay, so when you say he might leave to do politics, not yet. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, look, I, I've always had the view about my seat that it's not a guarantee. But does any part of you consider kind of just picking up the phone to friends at the bar and just saying, oh, I might want a job? <laughs> well, look, I've stayed as a qualified lawyer. I do some lawyering now and I think it equips me and makes me a better MP. It's these kinds of connections with the world outside Westminster that could prove invaluable for MPs that do lose their seats. George Young said back in the 70s he made some inquiries when he thought he might be defeated. I had a very marginal seat in 1974 and I thought I was going to lose in the second election. And I'd privately made some plans what I would do uh, next, how I would re-engage with the labour market. But publicly, we're going to win this election, I'm going to hang on to my seat, which I did. So I'm sure MPs privately have those discussions. I might ask uh, colleagues for advice. But, but publicly, it's very important the party goes into the next election in it to win it. OK, so you're an MP whose party's just lost an election and been kicked out of government. Like George Young, you've somehow hung on to your seat. Now what happens? A bloody fight for the soul of your party, of course. An arranged marriage or a deranged marriage? But will it deliver Ken Clark, the leadership of the Conservative Party, and John Redwood in return for his handsome diary, the shadow chancellorship? My resignation as leader of the Labour Party will take effect immediately. We were told uh, a few seconds before we went into the party meeting that uh, Michael Foote had uh, won the leadership and I had lost. Now, have you got the name? <laughs> William Hayes. Vote for William Hayes. Ed Miliband is the new leader of the Labour Party by the narrowest of margins. Who will he be voting for? Well, that's not for you to know. That's, that's for me to decide. And you... I've decided yes. But did you tell the committee to run? No. And as we enter the 2024 election, already some Tory MPs are starting to prepare leadership campaigns. And names are very much already in the frame. Every single Tory MP is a plotter. If you're Kemi Badnock, how nice to know that the party faithful uh, like you. They like what she says. Newspapers have begun speculating on runners and riders for the contest we all expect to happen before too long. So my dark horse... Oh, yeah. Pretty Patel. Oh, yes! Would you think of working with Nigel on maybe restructuring the Tory party? I would like him to become a member of the Conservative Party. What I think that they should probably not be doing is sort of brazenly preparing for it in public. Opposition expert Nigel Fletcher again. This is one of the things that tends to happen when a government is in trouble and is seen to be heading for a defeat, is that it starts behaving like an opposition. It starts behaving on a factional way. And we saw that with John Major's government in, in 1997. We saw it with Gordon Brown leading up to 2010, that you have 
sort of periodic outbreaks of rebellion and people sort of trying to mount a coup of, of some description. So that tends to happen. And it is the behaviour of people positioning themselves for power after the election. But I would caution them a little on that because it, it's certainly a job that, as William Hague described it after he did it, that he did the night shift of opposition. That period of, of leadership immediately after your party has crashed to defeat is not usually the one you want because the electorate and the media write you off and think that you're not going to come back next time and so why would they listen to you? And we've got quite brutal in recent years in getting rid of leaders who don't win elections. Whichever faction wins a future leadership election is likely to take control of the Tory party for the next few years, at least until they lose another election. Well, I mean, any party, when they lose a general election, tends to lose its self-confidence, and that is absolutely fatal. This is senior Tory MP Charles Walker. There tends to be a huge amount of introspection. They, they tend to drift to the margins. That's what happened with Labour in 2010. To some extent, it happened to us in, in 97. And there's this sort of political appetite for simple solutions to complex problems, and that just means drifting further to the right or left. It isn't, doesn't work like that. If there were simple solutions to complex problems, all of us would have found them by now. It requires a thorough analysis of why you lost and then a determined effort to restore your brand with the electorate. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it's actually not easy to find Tory MPs to talk on a podcast called How to Prepare for Opposition. In fact, Charles Walker initially said he absolutely categorically would not be able to, but then very kindly answered a few questions when I collared him in Parliament a few days later. Nobody goes into politics to be in opposition. Each day it just gets worse. We all go into politics to be in government. That's what motivates and drives us, to be making the big decisions, not commentating on the big decisions. And what happens as soon as a party goes from government to opposition? Well, I mean, my experience is um, in 2005, there was a leadership election, although we, we weren't in government. Michael Howard stood down. There was a leadership election. And for about five weeks, people were really interested in what I thought as a opposition MP. Then once we selected David Cameron, nobody cared. Nobody, nobody cared what Charles Walker thought. Nobody cared outside David Cameron, George Osborne, what anybody thought. It is oblivion, political oblivion. And anyone who thinks they're going to be media stars when in opposition, are, are, they're just deluding themselves. Their currency collapses. But, but it's this sort of idea that you can reinvent yourself in opposition in a way you can't in government. Is there any truth to that? When you go into opposition, you've got to want to get back into government. It took the Tory party eight years, 97 to 2005, to realise actually they wanted to get back into government. It took the Labour Party 10 years, really from 2010 until they elected Keir Starmer in 2020, 10 years to realise they wanted to get back into government. You can go into opposition and just muck about and just be a sort of internal focus group, whinging and whining, stamping your feet, having tantrums, being ridiculous. Or you can use your time in opposition to recharge the batteries, find new and test new exciting policies to meet the challenges of the day so you can have a compelling offer at the next general election for the British public. When you're in opposition, you have got to have that fire in your belly to make it as short a visit as possible. George Young. Talking from the safety of a job for life in the Lords is more sanguine about the longer-term view. 
you can float some ideas in opposition in a way that is less hazardous than floating them in government. If you float an idea in government, people assume it's government policy. In opposition, you can say we're in opposition, we're looking at what uh, might be in our manifesto in five years' time. Here are some ideas. This is perhaps why some Tory MPs have started suggesting that a spell in opposition might do the party some good. Indeed, George Young says that after entering opposition, MPs can turn the negative of having their manifesto rejected by voters into a positive. They said, we've looked at that, thank you very much, but no. And that gives you the freedom to think again, whereas if you won the election, you are bound by your manifesto. And so after the 97 election, which, which we lost, we did have a certain freedom to think again, why did we lose the election, and then revise some of the policies. And some policies were changed. William Hague and Michael Howard changed the policy, for example, towards Europe. We became a slightly more Eurosceptic party than we had been when we were in government with John Major. Look, everyone is split on this. Some honestly make opposition sound like a week of annual leave to refresh, but others are more convinced it will be at least a decade of irrelevance. Robert Buckland is in the latter camp. Not in our gift to decide how long the British people want to keep us in opposition. It'll be up to them. And I think modern experience shows that five years is, in fact, not the norm. It's getting longer and longer. Ten or even 15 years seems to be the norm now for parties when they go into opposition. And that's a hell of a long time to be uh, eating dust and being frustrated and watching the country being controlled by a government of another stripe that has its hands on the levers. And in government, you have got the power of initiative and the power to change the weather and the power to set the agenda. Uh, And I think colleagues who who long for opposition are really fooling themselves. It's interesting, though, because it's sort of this idea of the soul of the party. And people seem to think that they might be able to find the soul of the party in opposition in a way that it's been perhaps lost in recent governments. I disagree with that. I don't really need my soul rediscovering, thank you very much. And if it means some sort of uh, move to the extremes of politics, then frankly, that is the way to disaster. And are you saying that to colleagues? Because there is sort of some jostling, even potentially a bit in the open from some of your colleagues, perhaps to the right of the party, about the future leadership. Well, look, I mean, my advice to them is uh, concentrate on the here and now. We've got a leader, the Prime Minister, who deserves our fullest and full-throated support right through to the election and beyond. Don't even think about what might happen after an election. I'm not interested, frankly. For anyone that is interested, Neil Kinnock has some wisdom to impart. It's essential that the leader of the opposition understands the responsibility because even on a bad day, nine, ten million people will have voted for their party. So he or she has got an obligation to them. But the fundamental obligation is to the well-being of our country. If you are not motivated entirely by that, you should be doing something else, fly fishing or stamp collecting something, because it does less harm. That leader in discharging responsibility should establish a mechanism for the analysis and assessment and development of new ideas in policy. Because obviously the the policies put at the previous election, whether from opposition or government, have been rejected. And you've got to bear the necessary humility of being in the defeated party. It doesn't mean you should be deferential or hypersensitive. It does mean that you should know your position and want to build out of it. 
And for anyone in his position, maybe you could learn from this. There's one instruction Kinnock gave his staff that he regrets. Never to keep a diary. And the reason I regret it is that when it was all over and they were back in something like normal life and I was back being a backbench MP, they could have made a fortune and paid their mortgages and put food on the table with the proceeds of selling their diaries. But they honoured it. They didn't keep diaries. For their sake, I regret (laughs) forbidding them from keeping a diary. My final question, did you enjoy being leader of the opposition? Most of the time I hated it. My daughter sort of summed it up. When uh, Tony Blair became leader of the opposition, the Blairs had the bright idea of our kids should have a talk to them. And she said, it's not easy. Sometimes it can make you miserable, but you know your dad is doing the right thing. And always remember, I wouldn't have been to the BAFTAs or film premieres or met Clint Eastwood <laughs> if, if Dad hadn't been leader of the Labour Party. So, <laughs> so these are the compensations, I guess. So, how do you prepare for opposition? You don't. Recent precedent suggests parties that get into opposition spend more than a term there, so really, there's just no need to rush. Unless, of course, you want to be leader. And after hearing this, surely you don't want that job. When you get into opposition, it might be useful to pick up a skill or two. It might even come in handy when your party eventually gets back into government. But politics is about winning, so enjoy the small victories in opposition and remember, this is a time to make mistakes because barely anyone is paying attention. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us, and maybe even leave us a nice review. My X handle is at Agnes Chambray. And if you want to hear more on preparing for opposition, my colleague Noah Keat has just written a story that's been published on our website on exactly that topic. But before you go, Sasha is here. Welcome back, Sasha. Thanks, Aggie. It's great to be back. I loved that episode. Thank you very much. So, Sasha, next week is your debut solo episode. I'm so excited. What's it about? Right, Okay. so as you know, I'm one of many Australians knocking around the halls of Westminster. And I think definitely for the last couple of years, there's been this post-Brexit fascination with Australia. There's been so many Australian advisors. There was obviously the big Australia-UK free trade deal. So that's what I'm exploring next week. I'm looking at why you guys all so obsessed with us. Oh, well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to hear it. Thanks so much for coming in. My producers this week were John Rogers and Robert Nicholson of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. And my editor is Rosa Prince. Sasha will be back next week for her exciting debut. We'll see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.